Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. All right, so we are, we're in Luke chapter 4. Uh, we are going to do Luke 4 into two parts because the temptation of Christ is so rich. Uh, we're going to spend some time today talking about temptation. Chapter 1 and 2, John the Baptist and Jesus are both born under miraculous circumstances. They're both given this mission of Messiah. John's the announcer. Jesus is the Messiah. And in John chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized by John. John declares him the Son of God. God declares him the Son of God. And Luke shows it with the genealogy and, and brings all those things to bear. So Luke 1 through 3 is kind of an introduction to this book. And now we get into the storyline of it, the actual events of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus has identified with humanity through baptism, and now he's going to identify with humanity through temptation. In other words, temptation is not a sin. It's common to all humanity. But Jesus beats sin and we don't. That's the difference. Verse 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led, in, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days, he ate nothing. And afterwards, when they had ended, he was hungry. Again, emphasis on food. Just had to point that out. But Holy Spirit's where we start. Luke's mentioned the Holy Spirit a few times. I want to take a little time today. And again, I, I don't normally slow down this much, but these are big concepts and we've had a lot of conversations over lunch about the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? How does it work? There's four different Greek words that get used with the Holy Spirit. There's para, en, epi, and plerais. And they each, they mean in, on, and upon. And in this case, we have filled or plerase. So this is the fourth one. That, that means that the Holy Spirit was with Mary and, and, and Joseph and with Elizabeth and Zacharias. The Holy Spirit was with John the Baptist. But the Holy Spirit is overflowing or filled, filling Jesus Christ as he does this slightly different relationship. And as humans, we relate to the Holy Spirit in all four of these ways. Since the Holy Spirit was released at Pentecost, we have this access to God that doesn't require a trip to the temple and killing of cows. The veil is torn and we can go right to it. So the Holy Spirit is God. Three in one Trinitarian belief system. John 14, Jesus promises us that God will be with us in the form of a comforting Holy Spirit. So part of the blessing of being a Christian is that you live a life para, en, epi, and plerase with the Holy Spirit. And so there's different ways to do this. How do we interact with this and what does it look like? These four phrases are pretty important to our theology and what we believe about the Holy Spirit. They're all biblical. So we're going to start with the first one, which is en, E-N in the Greek. Um, to take, to own, or to associate with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, if I'm sitting... Um, yeah, we'll get to the in a sec. John 14, 17. Here's an example of this use of it. The spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you. That's para. So to, he dwells alongside or near or besides you. Now, before I was saved, there's references to people that the Holy Spirit led them to salvation, right? So this is para. 
The Holy Spirit comes alongside you. It's like sitting on a bus and somebody's sitting next to you and they say, hey, you should get saved. That's the voice of a Holy Spirit speaking to me. And I, as a non-believer, can be an influenced when the Holy Spirit is alongside or para with me. And I can hear it coming from another source. When somebody reads the Bible, the Holy Spirit is coming through that Bible. The voice of God is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And so as a non-believer, I can para, though I can recognize and see and be influenced by the Holy Spirit, right? Pharaoh was not a Christian, but the Holy Spirit influenced some of the decisions Pharaoh made. So we see examples of that in the Old Testament. And then there's to receive or to take in the Holy Spirit. John 20, verse 22. That is E-N-N, to, to take into or have the Holy Spirit come into us. So that comes in the same way. I can read the Bible and the Holy Spirit's there and I have a soft heart and the Holy Bible is just changing how I think. Now I'm influenced or I have taken in a Holy Spirit. God's Spirit is speaking because God's Word is in me, the fellowship of the saints, like I'm talking with you guys and we're talking about Jesus and evangelism and Bible, and now I have the Holy Spirit in me, not just agreement with the Holy Spirit, but my heart has started to change and become more and more like Jesus. I start to think and want the things that God thinks and wants. So my spirit and God's spirit become somewhat co-joined. That's N-E-N in the Greek, to take or to own or to be associated with the Holy Spirit. When I tell somebody a phrase from the Bible, that is the Holy Spirit plerase. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is the word we have in our verse today. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a really good interpretation if you have the New King James. So this is... Not just that he's associated with the Holy Spirit, but the plerais is a complete filling as in taking a hollow vessel and putting and have it be filled with the Holy Spirit right up to the top. That's plerais. This is a mature believer, and I'd say plerais and epe are both mature believer kinds of Holy Spirit. In that I've been walking with God for 30 years or Jesus was walking with God for 30 years. He was in the temple when he was age 12, reading the word, knowing the word, living in the word. But now he's like walking day to day with this kind of constant connection. The Bible says we should pray without ceasing. So this idea of just like, I'm walking with the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say to this person? How do you want me to do this? Oh, Lord, my tire broke down. Well, that's not a tragedy. Lord, who am I going to run into at the, at the auto mechanic shop? And you're just kind of always looking for where the Holy Spirit's guiding you in life. And this is why it says that Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit, plerais, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. You see the difference? So this idea of plerais is to be filled up in that kind of way. And then you got epi. This is the fourth one that we see in the scriptures. Epi, E-P-I. And the, think of an EpiPen, like, you know, it's there, but this is... The EpiPen overflows with stuff. It's a bad example. I'm sorry, but it's the same Greek word that we that we use in other words. Acts 1.8 has a great example of epi. Epi is, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has epi you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Epi is not just to be filled up with the Holy Spirit. It's to be overflowing with it to the point that it comes out. Right? It's like if you're filling up a, a glass of water with a hose, you know, there's a point where, you know, you, you go from you're putting water in the cup, N, then you have the cup is now full, plerase, but when you fill it with a hose and you don't take the hose out and it's just all over the place, that's epi. It's, it's like a fountain. It's all over the place. 
So upon or over related to distribution, epi is overflowing. Luke chapter 3 uses it with Jesus' baptism. He's overflowing with the Holy Spirit to the point where you can see it in a physical form like a dove. It's all, everybody can see what's going on. It's amazing for believers, I think mature believers, that are constantly plerace, they're living, they're walking, they're being led by the Holy Spirit. At some point, others can visibly see that there's something different about that person. Epi. The Holy Spirit's just overflowing out of you. It becomes your character. And that's why Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If I get my mind set on the words of God, my heart starts to change and follows after it. Tonight, when we're doing the David's prayer back to God from the Davidic covenant, he's epi. He's overflowing with the Holy Spirit when it shows like that. And it's just it just pours out of people. So para is if I had an empty glass of water sitting next to an ocean of water. That's para. They're next to each other. And is when I start taking a bit of water and throwing it into that empty glass. And now there's something competing with the emptiness. That's and epi is I've filled it to the top, or I'm, is uh, uh, plerace is, is I've filled that up to the top. Epi is it's now overflowing the cup. And that's the difference. Sometimes new believers get frustrated because they're struggling with f- getting rid of the emptiness. And they're not exhibiting things. They're not seeing the fruit in their life yet. And that can be frustrating for a new believer because they're so excited, but nobody seems to respond. And part of it is that history just isn't there. That pattern isn't there. People are wondering if you're just going through a phase, right? But part of it is renewing your mind and thinking like God over time. Jesus is at this point 30 years old. So if God himself took 30 years to start his ministry, new believers need to just like be patient a little bit. Trust that God's going to do things in God's time. And sometimes that character takes form. And Jesus didn't even need that 30 years. Like, I'm guessing he could probably have started earlier if he wanted to. But he waited till he was 30, I think, because God wanted to show us what a human life can look like. And and he's not using any tricks or tools that we don't have in this entire passage. So we do have the power of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We look at Acts. We look at John. It's a very consistent theme. We do have the ability to overflow with the Holy Spirit to where other people can notice that. So he's not using anything we don't have. And I think to me, that's a huge blessing. Like I'd hate to compete with God himself on how to live a life. But I I think when God incarnated himself as a baby in a manger, the whole point was to limit himself and show us that it's possible to live the way he's asking us to live. So the law then convicts us because if it's possible to live holy and God could follow all of these laws, yet we can't, now we're convicted by the law. Luckily, Jesus also provides salvation and a way out, right? So, and, and he says, I'm going to take my perfect life and I'm going to substitute it for yours. And that overflowing of the Holy Spirit that he gives is also one of love and sacrifice. It's not of selfishness. He's not just showing us up like, hey, look, how good, look at how good I am. He's saying, here's how you walk. Here's how you can be led by the Holy Spirit. I also want to point out that he's being, um, all of this directs our attention to the fact that Jesus has limited his divine nature into a human carnal nature. Like he has limited himself and everything about this passage says that. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, but why would God need to be filled with himself? Because he's limited himself in a human form. It's hard for a three-year-old brain to process things. He had to endure childhood where the brain isn't fully put together yet. And he's probably running around getting scrapes on his cheek and stuff like that. And he had to learn. He limited himself. He gets hungry. Do you see that in verse 2? 
You know, why would God Almighty, who can create food out of nothing, manna in the wilderness, why would he be in the wilderness and not have food in his belly? He could just create it and make it neat. But he's choosing to limit himself. So in those days, he ate nothing. He makes a choice to eat nothing, even though his physical body wants food and he gets hungry because of it. It's not a bad thing to limit or restrain ourselves. In fact, it gives us the power that we need. So he relates his human deity into a human channel. There's a reason for all of this. I also want to point out that where the Holy Spirit leads him is into the wilderness. Sometimes we think when we get saved, the Holy Spirit's just going to leave us to lead us to unicorns, rainbows, and happiness. No, sometimes the Holy Spirit leads you into trials and into struggles and into want and into need because he knows what's better for your soul than you do. And so Jesus is led out into this wilderness. It's not necessarily sunshine and roses. <laughs> we think immediately after the pinnacle moment of baptism that Jesus would just be on the stage. Everybody sees God speak from the heavens. You'd think his ministry would start when he's got the press cycle, when the media's on him. But instead he goes 40 days, a month and a half. That's a long time for humans to forget what happened at the baptism. So instead of starting his ministry when he's on a peak, he actually isolates and does the opposite. Isn't that interesting? Like as human nature, like honestly, if like we made the news and it's like, hey, there's this Bible study, you know, they meet and they do, it's just great. And all of a sudden we had like a thousand people show up and we were like meeting in the backyard trying to tell people to bring lawn chairs. Man, we would think we're on a roll and we would never occur to us to not have church the following Sunday. But this is exactly what Jesus does. Like, if you want to learn from Jesus, he's not going to do it on a media roller coaster, on a, on a, on a wave that humanity creates. Uh-uh. He isolates himself. He's got work to do, trials to have, time's going to pass. So Jesus fights temptation with the same tools we have in doing this. He's spirit-filled and he's got the word of God. Super simple. And, I, and we'll go through this, but not only does he have the word of God, he has a very small amount of the word of God. Like this is a really small sample he's taken. Um, most of you could probably cite more Bible verses than Jesus does in this next passage. Knowing which Bible verse to cite, that's the thing. So he's being tempted, verse 2. Sometimes people think it's a sin when they're tempted. And new believers really struggle with this. Well, I, I still like to... Uh, I still like to get attention. I still like my pride. I still like my desires. I still kind of am greedy and I think about money a lot. And new believers can struggle with that and they feel guilt and shame because Satan loves to pound the guilt and shame on that. But if Jesus is tempted, that means temptation is not a sin. Giving into it is. Here's another thing about temptation. Doesn't temptation get worse the longer you hold off? So if I don't sin, the temptation increases. So we think, wow, Jesus wasn't tempted as we were. Yeah, he never gave into it. He was tempted way worse than we are. We tend to give in to sin for a release. Jesus never does. Let's 40 days of this doing it. It's why him being so hungry is a relevant point. Jesus identifies with humanity in temptation, but he does not identify with humanity in relenting to it and giving in to sin. Huge difference. So Jesus then has to face these things. What are the things he faces? Well, I'm going to argue that he faces the three temptations that are here, but he also, um, he is enduring the fact that uh, he's being tested. Being tested or being tried by God is not a temptation. It's God just testing the metal. When a blacksmith pulls the, the finished blade out of a fire, what they do is they dump that blade in oil and they quench it. And it takes it from red hot, 
to cold as quick as possible. And then they put it on the anvil and they take a file, another piece of metal, and they scrape the file on it. If the file digs in, the metal's too soft. It's not ready to do the work. But if the file skates over the top of the metal, that, that metal's hard enough to do the work that it's being made to do. Well, that's the same thing God does in a test or a trial. He tests us to see if we're ready to do what he has for us to do. And if we're ready, that work he's called us to is going to be a blessing to us. Nothing better for a sword than to go out and cut things. That's what makes swords happy. Nothing better for a Christian than to go out and share our faith. That's what makes us happy. And so that idea of being tested or tried is not in temptation. But here are the three temptations. Our own desires, number one, the flesh. The pressure to culture and the trends of the society we live in, which is the world or the idols of the world. And then Satan himself, the malevolent force that wants to mess you up. And yes, there is an enemy here that we see in this passage. There are spiritual forces that hate what God's doing with humanity, and they're working actively to stop what God's doing with humanity. They don't like humans. Humans, God's giving way too much honor to. This access to God that Jesus gives us, these enemies hate that. They would rather we rebel against the God that has created these systems or created this, this plan of his. So there is a devil, a Satan, both words get used in this passage, that interrupts our calling for work and ministry in order to stop us from getting more other humans to glorify God. They hate God. And us little Christians singing our songs to glorify God, they, that, that bothers them. The, the devil then that's here by the devil is that Satan's, or Jesus is being tempted by the third of these things, a malevolent force. But he's already been, he's lived 30 years. He's been tempted by the flesh. He's been tempted by the world and vanities of the world. At this point, he's got 40 days where a malevolent force is trying to stop him from doing the ministry that God's called him to do. We experience the same thing. Why would Satan mess with you and your brand new believer when he's got the world and the pressures of the world doing everything to get you compromised? He's got, you got your own flesh working against you. And if you're still trying to fill the cup with the Holy Spirit, Satan doesn't care. So I think it's funny when you get people that are like, oh, Satan made me do it. It's like, no, they didn't. That's just your flesh. The Satan's not, he's limited. He's not omnipotent. The enemies that are spiritual, they're not everywhere all at once. They don't read your mind. They just know you because they're older than you. And they know your tendencies and your flesh. And they can, with very little influence, generally mess people up. But I think the enemy, there's this evil force. They do go after people that are about to do a ministry. And they're about to engage in a ministry and start it, which is exactly where Jesus is. So it's 40 days. There's a specific allusion to 40 days. We see a lot of 40 days in the Old Testament. Uh, we get some highlights here. 40 days is kind of a number of testing or trial. Noah and the ark are on the water for 40 days. Moses goes on to the mountain and goes to be alone with God for 40 days. So we see these kind of these periods here, and we get some highlights of it from Luke, but obviously for 40 days, that would be a whole book you could write, but we just get the highlights. So Luke selected these temptations, they're particular, and they're of specific kinds. And arguably, um, this is the only account in Luke where he's kind of getting it secondhand, because Jesus is all by himself, and he's not with Luke when he's writing this book. So we have a pretty unique passage here in that throughout the rest of Luke, he kind of shows his source 
But on this one, he's having to interview the disciples and people that Jesus told about this. So it becomes an interesting kind of passage. Luke uh, would be interviewing these disciples. Jesus is then telling his disciples about how he trained, how he got ready, how Satan tried to get him. Why would Jesus tell disciples that? Why would he tell his church that? Because he wants us to know. This is what the enemy will do to try to mess up your ministry. This is how he attacks people that are about ready to actually convert people and share their faith with people. So it's an essential for humanity to know what's going on here. Jesus made sure he told his disciples. He made sure that the disciples told Luke. Make sure this gets recorded and remembered. Jesus then becomes the ideal human having limited himself to human tools. He eats nothing and he gets hungry. Dr. Luke recognizes that when he uses this phrase, he gets hungry, he's on the point of death. 40 days without food, you say that's impossible. Well, it's not impossible, but you're close to death when it happens. You're seeing things, you're messed up, your muscles start to not just atrophy, but disappear. You get little spasm twitches that start to happen because your body doesn't have the nutrients to sustain itself anymore. Your system starts to shut down. Your stomach and your digestive system start to shrivel to where they can't handle food anymore. So at 40 days, when Luke says he was hungry, in the English, that almost feels like an understatement. In the Greek, it's like he's about dead. So this happens right at the end of himself, at the end of his flesh. And we can note here that being hungry isn't a sin, but it is a condition for temptation. It is putting your physical body in a weak place. And so I think, again, I'll I'll emphasize this. If you got people that are hungry and they're not well nourished, it's hard for them to do the work of the ministry. So Jesus puts himself in the worst possible situation here in this hunger, being a relevant part for it. Given Luke's genealogy, we can consider this. Adam got tempted in a garden with all the food he needed, with no work required to get it, and a wife, right? So he he gets everything, and he's tempted by the devil. Jesus puts himself in a non-ideal situation and has none of the benefits, which makes you think this. Are physical flesh comforts really helpful for our spiritual life? Because we see Adam lose when he has everything. We see Jesus win when he has nothing. And so I think this is an interesting thing. When Luke says he, he ate nothing and he was hungry, it says something to us when it comes to provision. Like, we have to weigh that and balance that a little bit. Having everything doesn't always help us spiritually. It doesn't put us in the best position to win. Sometimes hunger and want is actually helpful for a spiritual life. This is why Christians sometimes fast, is that we exercise hunger and we understand what it feels like. But we don't fast when, the, when, our, when the Lord's with us. But sometimes when you feel like you're distant, sometimes to get closer to God, to do spiritual battle, sometimes that can be an exercise that's helpful. That said, don't go and be like bulimic or something like that. Like there's also eating disorders. So fasting is not an eating disorder. It's a very different kind of practice. Um, if you want to know more about it, we can talk about it. Jesus is tempted over 40 days. He's in the wilderness. He has no provision. He's at a point of weakness. And then this happens. Verse 3, temptation number 1. The devil says to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word of God. Temptation number two. Then the devil talking to him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you in their glory. And this has been delivered to me and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only you shall serve. Temptation number three. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle on the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. For it's written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said to him, It's been said, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. That's where we're going to start. Three temptations. A physical temptation, take care of yourself. A pride temptation, take care of the world. And a spiritual temptation, let's put your will against God's will. These are the, these are the tools Satan's got. I love this. If you're going to start a ministry, this is where you're going to get attacked. And we're just told this is how it works. We have to unpack this a little bit. There's key elements of temptation that happen after the baptism, prior to ministry. You know, it makes me think that sometimes we do premarital counseling, that maybe we should do pre-baptism counseling. But we're getting it because we're going to do baptism next week and here's your counseling. This is what's going to happen after you get baptized. If you want to announce to the world, I'm going to serve God and I'm going to change and I'm going to give my life to the Lord. Well, this is where you're going to get hit. And it's going to, and, and so get ready for battle because this is the battle you're going to have. Jesus answered and says to him, it's written, you shouldn't live by bread alone. I just love this. He answers him simply. These are simple responses that we can use and just deal with these kinds of situations. So we can notice that Jesus uses scripture for all three of these. He doesn't use magic Jesus words. He uses words that we have, that we can use, tools that he's already given to humanity. And he, and he, and he pulls all three of these in a way that we could easily pull these threes and use. He's showing us how to fight temptation. It's a great passage. And he limits himself to these tools, and I think he models how to beat the devil. And if you can beat the devil, you can also beat what the world and culture throws at you, and you can also beat your own flesh with this. So this is just a way to do it. So here it is. If you're the son of God, the very first word out of the devil's mouth is a lie. If. Is Jesus the son of God? Yes, he is. It's not an if. And the way Jesus works is so subtle. He's a liar and he's an accuser and he brings doubt. So here's the thing. Satan will say, if you were called to speak to that person across the street, if you were called into ministry, if that's the real thing, are you just making this up? And he does the same thing with Jesus. Are you really, did you really hear from God? Is that really the case? That's what he did with Eve in the garden. Did God really say you couldn't eat from this tree? Is that really what he said? So the word if becomes this article that gives a conditional state. Jesus' status as son of God and, and savior of the world, it's not conditional. When God calls you into ministry, that's not conditional. It's what he's called you to do. And he's put it in your spirit. You need to do it. Um, so we have um, chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus is called the salvation of God in the flesh. Chapter 3, verse 22. God says that Jesus is his son. Chapter 3, verse 38, the genealogy in history says this is the Son of God himself. So if you read chapter 3, the word if is an absolute lie. Luke's given all the not, why this is not an if in the previous chapter. This is actually the Son of God actually called to do this. Or he's saying, in the if, he's saying, well, if you're the Son of God, like the word given. Well, given that you're the Son of God, some of your commentaries might say that. The problem is the word there in the Greek is if. It's a conditional article. It's not given that you're the Son of God. Jesus, Satan's not agreeing with that. He put a conditional article in front of it. Or at least in the Greek, that's how it's been translated. Um, so 
it's it's you could read it either way, and I think the passage still is is solid for you and helpful. But I'd encourage you to read it as a flat out lie. He's putting a manipulative lie into the question, and that's what Satan does. He brings doubt. So the first word that he speaks is just crud, and then he mixes in half truths with it. Right. So our doubt in ministry is to prove it, and Satan will do this: prove that you've been called to ministry. And we don't need any other proof other than the word of God. Well, God says I'm supposed to preach to all nations in the world. God says I'm supposed to take care of my family. God says I'm supposed to disciple and teach. So I'm doing those things in the degree to which God's given me the capacity to do that. God says I'm supposed to host and be hospitable. God says I'm supposed to show brotherly kindness to other people in my church. God says I'm supposed to be above reproach with the world and be honor and at, at peace to every degree that I can be at peace with people in the world. So I do that. I don't need to prove that to anyone ever. It's in God's word. I can move forward with that. And this is exactly how Jesus responds to it. That idea of we'll prove it is right alive from right from Satan's mouth when somebody says that. So command these stones to be, be bred. Satan goes right at his physical needs. Luke's already told us he's hungry. That's true. Jesus is hungry. And this has to be tempting after 40 days. You're thinking, what if I die here? 40 days in the wilderness. When Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years, what did God do? He gave them manna, right? He fed them. Water came from a rock. Well, here's Jesus hanging out in the wilderness. No manna shows up. That had to be hard. You know, and maybe on day one or two, you get those first hunger pains. Then you go a couple weeks and you're like, okay, I can do this hungry thing. But come on, God, you're supposed to provide. Maybe I'm just here because your spirit called me to be here. No provision, no provision. Then he gets to day 30 and he's like, now he's feeling the physical effects. I think I'm going to start losing muscle mass. All those carpentry muscles are starting to go away. Your body starts to eat itself at day 30. Day 31, day 32. Okay, God, I, I, I'm, you're not telling me to leave. Like, what's going on? Day 33, day 44, you can start to see things are going wrong. You're getting muscle twitches. You're seeing things. You're weak. You're passing out, right? You're fainting. He's, you know, th- these sorts of things, all these things are real for Jesus. And we just get, he was hungry. He had to be thinking, why would God starve me to death if he's called me to do this work? But Lord, if this is where you want me, this is where I'll sit. But I, you know, and my pride says I should be over here doing this. My body says I should eat some food. Satan's like, just make some food. What are you doing here? You're God. If you're God, you should be able to make your own manna. Maybe God's waiting for you to make the manna. He's given you the power. So he takes a step towards ministry. And in our life, that means it takes time. It takes income, right? It takes, ministry means less in our pocket when it comes to resources, time, effort, Like we're giving something to other people because we love other people. And so one of the temptations in ministry is, well, are you going to be able to pay your bills? Are you going to have enough time to do that other thing? Do you get enough me time in your week? That's the one that hits me. Do I get me time? God didn't, I don't see in the word where I get me time ever. If you serve an almighty God, do you struggle with the provision it takes to give to that God? Yeah, of course you do. Of course it's a sacrifice. What do you want? with that stuff that he's given you. By the way, this works with Adam, you know, right? Here's your wife coming and he's tempted to eat what isn't given to him to eat. And the temptation is take it, take that thing you want. Why not? Jesus responds with a passage from Deuteronomy 8. I'm just going to read the passage because Jesus did. 
You shall remember all the way the you shall remember all the way in which the Lord has led you to the 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove this to you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep the commandments or not. That sound familiar? 40 days, here we go. And then verse 3 is the one he quotes, and he humbled thee, and he suffered you to hunger. And fed you with manna, of which Jesus has seen none of this manna. So this is the Bible verse he quotes. Of which you knew not, neither did your fathers know, that he might make, he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. I think Jesus for 40 days is going through the scriptures. And if he's got this verse on his heart, this is his Bible study from the morning. Like, this is what he's reading. Because it gives instructions to be in the wilderness for 40 years, right? It's telling him, you're going to get hungry. And Luke says he got hungry. And then it says, you're going to get fed with manna. But then it's like, yeah, but you're not going to know it. Your, your fathers didn't, that you might know that man doesn't live by bread alone. It's not the manna that's going to sustain you. It's my word that sustains you. This is incredible. But all we get is this short little bit. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Jesus doesn't even cite the whole verse. I think that's great for people who struggle with memorization. Like, you don't need to memorize the whole verse. Just memorize the point. The point of it is you don't live by bread alone. And then Jesus is like, oh, man, I'm getting this temptation. I'm, I'm really tempted to make this food and just eat something. But you know what? I don't need the food. I don't live by bread. That's not what I need right now. I need to go through this journey. Whether there's want or plenty, there's more to life than the flesh. I think this is what brings a lot of people to the Lord. They actually get success, they get wealth, they get prosperity, and they realize there's nothing there. You're still hungry. You're still left with nothing. You're just like, man, there's just more to life than this. And I think for starting the ministry, when you have to give your time, it's like, you know what? All these things I've been spending my time on, they don't fill my heart. They're a waste of time. I love this generation, whatever it is right now, because they're like this. They're like, I'll work half time because life isn't about working 60 hours a week and getting some paychecks so that it can be eaten up by interest by the time I retire. Oh, retire? I'm not going to retire. Man, if you're Gen, Gen X or later, you're not retiring. Give that up, right? So I'm not going to just give all my time to it. If there's no end to this that's blessing, then I'm going to give my time now. I'm going to work part-time. I'm going to work 30 hours. I'm going to just do 40 hours. I'm going to tell my boss no more. But that's part of ministry. Now I have time to do other things with my life. Sadly, a lot of people just take that time and go vacation with it instead of actually giving it to where there's fruit, right? But we don't serve the flesh. We don't live for it. We have a choice to be free from sin. We don't live by bread alone. So we live by this. We don't want what we desire. We want what God desires because God's plan has results. Our plan just wants more at the end. And it just goes on and on and on and on. However, God's plan does include a series of feasts and meals and food. So God's plan does have food in it. Um, Deuteronomy 6. And I'm going to give you Deuteronomy 6 for a reason. But I think this idea of not living by bread, if you just go two chapters back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6.11 says, And the house is full of all good things which you didn't fill, wells that were dug but you didn't dig them, vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant, when you shall have eaten, will be full. God says to Israel, you're going to live in a place where you didn't do everything. You didn't put in the 60 hours a week, yet you're still eating food. And I think this is part of this devotion for Jesus. Like, honestly, if you can look at Deuteronomy 6.11 and say, okay, the, you shall not eat by bread alone. 
The other two responses by Jesus both come from Deuteronomy 6. So wait, he responds to the summation of temptation with one chapter in the Bible? If you read Deuteronomy 6.11 and see that not live by bread alone piece there, he's really only citing one chapter. That tells me that he did his morning devotions and he's remembering what he read that morning and it's helping him deal with the, the entire attack of Satan. That's pretty awesome. It makes Deuteronomy 6 and chapter 8 pretty big deals. So God meets all these needs it, not the world, not the devil. Everything we need physically, God will provide. God will take care of it. Don't worry about it. You're not going to starve to death. I, we've had some people that have come here that have been really struggling financially, and they've been a blessing to our fellowship because they're awesome. And they're just like, oh, I don't know this and that and this and that. And so we started praying about it. And then we had Dan start bringing boxes of food and helping him out. We had Grant not want to wear clothing. So we gave away a bunch of clothing, certain clothing. He's still obviously dressed. <laughs> but it's just like, look, if you're in the fellowship and you're here every week hearing God's word, you won't starve to death. We're not going to let that happen. We got enough people here who have day jobs. Like, you won't starve, you won't be in tough shape, you may need to sleep in your car, but, like, if your car's got no roof on it or something, we'll find a place where you're not out in the rain, you know, but we're, you won't starve to death, it's not going to happen, don't worry about it, we'll be taken care of. You might have to make some sacrifices for the ministry, you might have to be a one-car family, you might have to live in a smaller house, you might have to wear generic brands instead of name brands, you might have to do some things that are homemade and actually put some work in with your brothers and sisters, but who cares? right? Who cares? No thanks to that. I can wear my cheap plastic watch. I don't have to wear the Rolex. And in doing that, I don't have to live for those things. I don't want to live for my gut, my want, my lust, my flesh, my desire. I want to live for God Almighty. I will not live by bread alone. And you can expand that idea. It's not just about food. It's just about, I'm going to, there's more to life than money. And I'm not going to do that. It's not my physical needs. Yeah, I feel so blessed. Most of the world doesn't have air conditioning and an icy cold basement, but we do. We're not sitting here. A lot of the world, when they study the Bible, they're sweating, they're hot, and they got bugs and flies all over them. You know, and they're just saying, Lord, keep the flies away so we can focus on the word. We don't, we're in total comfort here. It's kind of awesome. Then you get the second temptation. Devil changes gears because he's not going to waste his time. The devil, then the devil taking him on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to them, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you'll worship before me, it'll all be yours. Think about this. You start your ministry, whatever it is. You start blessing people and they start getting blessed. And then the next thing that happens is you start getting a big head. Oh, look at all I'm doing. Look at how awesome this is. With 40 days of wandering, I wonder if... In 40 days, it wouldn't have been hard for them to retrace some of the steps of Moses in the wilderness. Same wilderness. And maybe, just maybe, the mountain that they're on is actually Sinai, where Moses was. And, it, and again, the Bible doesn't say that, but just a thought or an image, that high mountain is pretty vague. Otherwise, it's in a high place, a position where you can see a lot, and, God, and, and, and he's kind of wandered up to this place. But it says the devil taking him up on a high mountain. In the beginning of this, it was the Holy Spirit that led him into the wilderness, right? But it's the devil that takes you to the high mountain. And that difference or shift from Luke, I think, is really intentional. Sometimes in the ministry, we start thinking really like grand grandiose things. Oh, this is great. Like, man, we're going we're gonna to rock this. We'll be as big as Saddleback in like two years. That's the high mountain thought. 
oh yeah, awesome, that'd be so great. But how, I wasn't led to that. I was led to this. And, and I was led to a wilderness, but Satan loves to take us to that high pace that, where we think we can see it all. Frankly, if you're in Israel, there's no, there's no rocky mountain high mountains. I mean, those mountains are very modest by global standards. We're not in the Himalayas here, right? When they call a mountain, it's like a rise where you can see a few other little rises. All the kingdoms of the world is an interesting phrase. Um, in Genesis 10, after 40 days of flood, all the kingdoms of the world come out of that ark. Ham in Africa, Shem in Arabia, Japheth in the north. So all the kingdoms of the world come out of that ark after 40 days. Here we are after 40 days and Satan's showing them all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment, Luke ind indicates this is a vision. Like he's seeing things. And Satan's using that hunger and malnourishment to put things into Jesus' head. It's a flash. I think Luke puts that there because it's not a literal sight. Literalists will read this and go, there's no mountain in the world where you can see the whole planet because the planet is round. Whoa, you got me. You know, it's... Clearly, that's not what it is. It's in a moment. So even if you're thinking literally, like, it takes me more than a moment to, like, glance around 360. Luke's not claiming that he saw things literally. He's saying that he saw a flash. This idea came into his head. All this authority I will give to you. This is Jesus' calling. This is an interesting tactic for the devil. Jesus' calling on earth is to claim all authority back from Satan for dominion over the earth. This is what God's called him to do. So this gets confusing for us humans because it's like, okay, I know I've been called to do this thing and I see this path where I can do this thing. And that actually becomes a satanic attack. And this is tricky because Jesus getting all authority is absolutely what God's called him to do. But God's called him to do it his way, walking in the Holy Spirit. But Satan says, I got a shortcut to your goal. I can help you with that goal. If you do it my way, we'll get you there faster. So the devil says you can have it right now. And look at what he's having Jesus skip here. You can have all the authority if you do it with me. And then we don't have to fight. We can be at peace. If you just tolerate me, you can have everything you want. Man, this is sneaky. A victorious ministry with no struggle. Wouldn't that be awesome? We never have to battle anybody. We never have to work towards purity. That idea that when you have a sweet fellowship, it's like a glass of clean water. You bring somebody sinful into it and they're spreading their garbage. It's like corrupting the water. And as a church, we're like, no, no, no. When we're here, we want to kind of keep this space consecrated and holy. We want that to stay like a clear cup of water. And we're going to do what we need to do to make that happen. We want it to be pure. So there's this idea in a moment. You can have everything in a moment. Man, and this, this, this idea of victory without struggle. It's a lie from Satan. It doesn't happen. We're on a battlefield. There are forces of good and evil. There's holiness and there's selfishness. There's corruption and there's purity. And we are in a place where we're, we're trying to advance purity on the planet Earth. It is a battlefield. We got a lot of people around us that we love and they're living in their own filth. And we're like, here's a bathtub. And we're trying to show people that, but that's a struggle. You ever try to get a kid that's been playing outside all day to take a bath? They just want to keep playing outside all day. Or worse yet, you give them a bath and like my dog, they just go outside and roll in the mud instantly. Man, that's a battle. It's a fight that you fight all the time. Purity is a struggle. It's so easy to get dirty. It's so hard to stay pure. All their glory is what Satan says. And all their glory 
You're going to get all the credit. You'll get the attention. Like this won't look satanic. It's going to be super easy and nobody will know. You'll get all the glory, Jesus. That's what you want. That's what you're called to. You're God incarnate. And I know that you're more powerful than me. I know that, that, that the spirit in you is stronger than me. You'll get all the glory. No, it'll be super easy. No suffering, no cross. Can you imagine, Jesus? You're just going to skip that whole cross thing. Skip it. And then he makes this point, for this has been delivered to me. Jesus never challenges this statement. He doesn't respond and challenge it. And we see other passages where Satan, the enemy, is the prince of the air, spirit of this age. He's the spirit of the air. He's the thing that moves cultures and nations. There are powers and principalities against which we battle. Right? There are laws being passed that are satanic in nature. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's holy. We all know this, right? Well, the law says I can do it. Well, but God says you can't. So that's a satanic law. It's the spirit of this age. Adam's dominion was forfeited in Genesis 1. He was given authority, and then he gave it up by challenging God. Who claimed it? Satan did. Well, now he follows me. So I get the authority these humans should have been given. Well, Satan's come to claim it back. Or, and, and, Satan's, and, and he's announcing that he's taken it, and he's taken it back. And he does it with every single human being. You defy the will of God, and you're now following me. And before Jesus, when Jesus steps into this ministry, he's stepping into a one against everybody battle thing. What I love right now is today he's got a church. It's not one against the enemy anymore. He's got thousands, millions of Christians that are fighting against the enemy on this planet. He started a new kingdom. But at this point, it's just Jesus. Just Jesus. And Satan's trying to get him the same way he gets every other human being. I can give you things. I can make this easy. So loss being a theme where, where Satan says it's been delivered to me. There's a theme in the Bible where humans lose their inheritance and it comes up over and over and over. Just a, rem a reminder a little bit. Esau gave up his inheritance for a bowl of soup. Like, this is an easy battle for Satan to do this. Israel gave up its glory to go serve idols, like statues. Right? Solomon's gave the wisdom and glory. He gave it up for vanity, Ecclesiastes. He just gives it up. This has worked before. This attack from Satan, it works really well with humans. God's given you this blessing, this calling, this mission, but boy, those visions of grandeur, they, you can trade your mission for ease and no conflict and just get along with everybody. That's a worldly temptation. The first one was the flesh. This is the world. You can get along in the world and never have a spat at your coffee club. You can go to your quilting bee and never get into an argument again. Just make it easy for yourself. Stop fighting these fights. You know, people might call you silly, foolish, crazy nuts if you follow Jesus. You're a Jesus freak. Why do you keep talking about just anything but stop talking about Jesus? And you just laugh and be like, ah, I hear, what, I hear the voice. I know what that is. I just was in Luke chapter 4 this week. That's a worldly temptation. Just get along with us. Stop bringing up Jesus. I give it to whoever I wish, the devil says. He has millions of people that have forfeited his lives. That's a lot of authority that's just been handed to him for a bowl of soup. Cheap authority. Cheap respect. You want people to respect you, take a stand. I love it when kids think they're a rebel and they start dressing just like their favorite music band does. That's not rebellion, kids. That's compliance. 
that it's just your compliance doesn't look like your parents' compliance. Satan loves that. Change the clothing colors and you've just created a whole new trend and fad. And now you got a whole new generation of rebels that aren't rebelling at all. They're just giving their authority over to Satan. You really want to be a rebel? Start talking about Jesus in your classroom with your teacher in front of all the other students. Now you're a rebel. You want to be an outcast? Start praising the Lord every time something good happens. That, now that's rebellion. That will get you in trouble with the world. That might even get you suspended, fired. A lot of bad things will happen. Start doing it and see what happens. So this is the battle. This is the temptation of worldliness, right? Jesus, Satan says he'll give it to whoever he wishes, and, and he's not wrong. This is kind of the truth in this lie. Right? He can do that. He can make you successful. He can raise up godly, baptized, Holy Spirit people. He can raise them up in the church in a satanic way. Isn't that scary? Like We have churches in this country right now being led by absolutely demonically elevated leaders with the same attack he's bringing to Jesus. Jesus has been baptized. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's lived righteously his whole life. He gives into this temptation. He's just like somebody else, but I bet he has a super church Right? Or if Satan, if super churches get too popular, Satan will start making little mini churches, but he'll do the same thing with every one of them. Compromise, get at peace with the world, allow in garbage that God has said you shouldn't have, and just be at peace with it, and you'll have no conflict and fights, and you'll be really successful. And, you'll, and I'll get you big donors, no problem. You can have your new fancy pad and posh t-shirts and everything. It'll be awesome. He says, if you'll worship. This is the trade-off. The word there in the Greek is prokushino. Oh, no, there's no SH. Proshkunio. It's Minnesota accent Greek. It means literally to kiss the ring. Quick, fast. It's to prostrate, prostrate yourself, to kneel in homage. It doesn't take long to bend a knee. Just quick and fast. It is not a permanent thing. This word to worship is a token act that recognizes position. It's to get a little bit of help, to speed things up just a tad. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's hire a marketing team and find out. It'd be great. Great in business, not great in a church environment. Why do we fight Satan? Because we don't want to compromise with him. This is why we want to bring good out of the evil world. We want people to convert. There are no shortcuts to that. It is discipleship over time with people in a ministry, learning the word of God. It takes years. It's not quick and fast ever. So people often bring this temptation. If you do it my way, I'll worship a God-fulfilling ministry in your ministry. You become saved. You start loving the Lord. You start living for it. And people will come up to you and say, I'd love to do what you're doing, but you got to do it my way. Just real quick. I love what, this sounds really, really great, but I can't do that and I can't do this. So if you can come this direction on that with me, that would be great. And this is the point where you have an evangelism opportunity and the Holy Spirit, you can say, yeah, I'm not going to do that because this is what's working. I'm not going to break the system. I'm not going to take a shortcut for you. But when you get to the point where you're willing to come, the invitation's wide open. But it has to come on these terms. If you compromise a little bit, the devil will take away your ministry by greasing, greasing the path to his service. And all it takes is to kiss the ring. Just do that one little thing. And I don't know what that one little thing is. I frankly think it's different for everybody. But test it. Try it. We'll talk about it at lunch today. Right? This is what the enemy does. He'll bring really nice, good people that want to help your ministry or come to Christ, and, but they want to do it their own way. And it's like, there's one way, one life, one path, Jesus Christ, that's it. There's no other way to do this. 
So if you're really interested in this, come and do it. But if you have to do it your way or it has to be your thing or you still need to do your little deal that's human tradition, then keep doing that until you've run its course because it's a dead end. And I'm telling you that because there's no fruit there. And say it with confidence. This is God's word and what he says. We haven't even got to Jesus' response yet. All this will be yours. It's interesting that the devil doesn't need to have his name out in front. He's happy to let Jesus have the name there. It just can't be God's way. It has to be his way. Same outcome, really. And that you can see how tempting this is, right? I get everything I want in the ministry, everything that I want to do, quote unquote, for God. And I just do it this easy way and I get everything that, I, that I've dreamed in my heart. It's a, it's a really tempting thing. Christianity is invitational. Everybody's welcome. It's not inclusionary. It doesn't include all these other things and lifestyles. It doesn't work that way. Right? This will get me kicked off the podcast service. But it's just an invitational thing. And that temptation sadly takes root in Christian cultures that stray from the word of God. If you don't read the word of God, you don't know the rules of God, you are happy to compromise. Because there's nothing fighting against this temptation anymore. Let everything in. Doesn't matter. And Jesus answered and said to him, here's what he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. That's a statement of authority, right? I don't need your authority to do what God's telling me to do. You get behind me. There's a ranking system here. For it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus' answer, in all of his humanity, Satan has already been beaten because he's a lower rank than humans. Understand that. If we want that ministry God's put on our heart to move forward, we don't have to do it the world's way. God will make it happen. It just might not happen in our timing, and that's okay. So he, he quotes here Deuteronomy 6. This is why I quoted 6 as an alternative for that first one. Even if he's quoting chapter 6 and chapter 8, that's like a good morning devotion right? They're in the same spot, generally speaking. But, but this one's the Shema, like, Hear, O Israel, Lord your God is one God, and thou shalt have the love of the Lord your God in your heart and with all their soul and with all your might. Put God's word in your heart, teach it to others. That's a core ministry chapter, Deuteronomy 6. This is what we should do. Deuteronomy 6, 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall swear by his name. God's jealous. He doesn't want anybody else in there. If God's called you to a mission, do it God's way, stick to it. It's super simple. What's interesting here is to quote the Shema or the chapter that the Shema's in, this is like Jesus, for us, this is like Jesus quoting John 3.16. Like this is Sunday school stuff for the Jews. This is common. Every kid memorizes it. In fact, like little baby Jews, their parents would say the Shema over and over and over again to try to get their kid to have the Shema be the first words out of their mouth. This is how infantile Bible scholarship Jesus is using here. He's using step one Bible study. He's not doing scholar, he's not bringing a doctorate discourse to a satanic battle. He's bringing the stuff we teach in Sunday school to the satanic battle. Like he's using the most basic starting chapters that any Jewish kid would start to learn. I love that because that means that on my days where I'm not feeling particularly scholarly, I can cite the stuff I learned back in Sunday school, and that's sufficient to do battle with the enemy. That's how behind us Satan should be. We don't need it. We're not tempted by it. We're not interested in it, because we've learned as from a young kid that God's jealous, and there will be nothing else that gets his work done other than his spirit guiding us. That's it. I'll wake up this morning. I'll do what God's told me to do, and I'll deal with whatever God puts in front of me. Amen?
That's how it works. Super simple. I just love sim simplicity in this. Satan, however, doesn't quit. He won't give up. There is no easy fight, and now he's in one, and he's, he's, he's used everything that worked with Adam and virtually everybody in the Old Testament. You know, with Saul, he used the second argument. Hey, you can do it great if you just do it my way, and Saul just went right for it, right? And then he raised up David because Saul just utterly failed on this second temptation. So if we're here to make ministries more appealing to evil, give up on that. It's a false thing. It's prideful. It's arrogant. It doesn't work, and it rings satanic. We don't need to make our ministry more appealing to the world. We need to make the world see God's ministry so they are drawn to it. And that drawing to it is a blessing to the world when they get into it. If we compromise, we have nothing to show the world. If they compromise, they have tons of blessing to get if they repent and come to Jesus Christ. That's the way the battle works. Simple enough. So here's the third temptation. Let's say those two don't work. Here's the next one Satan tries. So he's tried the flesh. He's tried the world. Now he's going to try the will. Verse 9. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, there's that lie word again, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. So he brings him. Again, Luke's this could be literally, or it could be in a vision or a dream. Luke's not concerned with that right now. It's a great way, I think, when people get this idea of Satan bringing Jesus to places, that that particular, those three words, you can do like an entire debate on that. If you look on YouTube, you can find these. But think of how that debate takes away from the meaning of the passage, right? People just get lost in that idea of, well, how did Satan bring him to, like, what? How did that happen? And I don't think Luke's concerned with that. And it's this pinnacle could be on top of the temple. It could be just from a place that where you can see things. Again, Luke doesn't get caught up in that. But the pinnacle here, the pinnacle of the temple, is a place where the Shekinah glory was visibly seen for hundreds of years. The Shekinah glory sat over the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the temple. When Moses was in the wilderness, the Shekinah glory sat over uh, the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle moved, it followed that cloud. Remember all that? So to sit in that spot, Satan has put Jesus in a spot where Jesus has been before in the, in the spirit form. Like this is a familiar place for Jesus. So further, some Jewish records show that the human tradition of Messiah in, in the, the, before Jesus, the Jews thought Messiah would come by landing on the temple. And they had just this image. It's not biblical, but it was a tradition that humans had that this is where the Messiah would show up. He would come down onto the temple and reveal himself there. So Satan's put him in this spot that meets these human traditions, and he uses the word if again. Um, and he says to throw yourself down. So anywhere you look on the Temple Mount, to throw yourself down would be a death-defying drop. right? It's up on a hill. There's the Kidron Valley below it. Even if you're on the wall and you jump off, this would be, you would die in, in all sense. So he's, he's basically saying, put yourself in a harmful situation so that people can see God save you. So fabricate, force it. Satan has no power over Jesus, so he has to encourage him to do this. He has to trick him into doing something dumb. And there's this idea of showmanship that's here. Ministers doing pointless, risky, foolish things to prove that God's awesome. Right? And we can look at the easy examples of this, like people that do snake charming and walk on scorpions and just stupid things right? to show, oh, look how God saves us. 
Well, God doesn't save you. You've just learned how to handle snakes, right? That's not a miracle. That's just stupid. And so you get people to do this. Those are the easy targets. But when ministry is asking us to do things, to declare, to show, and teach people, and that's the calling of ministry, and Satan can use that against us. This is a tricky temptation. And I'm trying to, it's hard to under, like, do this. So Satan says, let's start with this, verse 10, for it is written. He uses the scriptures against Jesus. Oftentimes when you start your ministry, you'll have people that walk in and they'll say, hey, the scriptures say this, you should do it that way. You're like, well, that's funny that the, the Lord revealed that to you because he hasn't shown that to me. So how does that work? And I don't think people mean ill by this. I just think that they're deceived. They don't get the, how it works. Psalm 91, the, there's this twisting that Satan's using. This is not what Psalm 91 is about. But Satan uses this passage like he's an expert scholar person. Satan knows the scriptures. It doesn't save you to learn the scriptures either. Well, it, it frankly makes you more dangerous, right? If you use the scriptures without the spirit of God guiding you in your thinking and your action and your life and behavior, you just become an intellectual and you're a walking time bomb in a church. Sure, you know the scriptures, but you don't. You haven't walked by the spirit. There's no blessing and there's no fruit in your life. The Bible doesn't say you shall know them by their biblical knowledge. It says you shall know them by their fruits, by the outcomes of their life, by the influence they have on other people. Like, look at Timothy, Titus. How, how do you select leadership in the church? It really has very little. They should know the scriptures, but that's only one of a whole series of things to recognize what a godly leader looks like and how to set those people up. So Satan uses the scriptures. I just want to point that out. He uses Psalm 91. Anybody that dwells with God, God will care for them. That's what Psalm 91 is about. If you dwell with God, God will take care of you. What Satan's trying to do is shortcut what Psalm 91 says. He's, not, he's, he's skipping the whole dwell with God part. And he's making it about physical protection, not spiritual protection. Psalm 91 is about spiritual protection. That God will bless your heart when he does things. So Satan applies the language of a song to set him in this space where he can see this high spot. This song's about heaven. It's not about the temple. This song is about the heavenly, not the earthly. And Satan's just twisting it to be about the earthly stuff. This is the temptation that we can use the power of God for our own purposes and our own will, and we replace God with our will, and we do it our way. That's what this is. And so he's saying, lest you dash your foot, so you won't even stub your toe. Angels are going to guard you. Will angels guard Jesus Christ? Yeah. If Jesus goes and does something dumb, is he doing the will of God and being doing something stupid? No. He's not dwelling with God if he's throwing himself from temples trying to prove how awesome he is. So would it be a stunning thing? Would it kick off his ministry? Well, yeah. Jumping off a temple and floating in the air would get some attention. So it's showmanship. It's, it's doing something that big and splashy to get attention. And when it's within God's plan, God can do miracles. There's, not, there's absolutely biblical examples of miracles all over the place. God can do these things if we're doing it God's way. So we can reverse the if here. If we are God's, he will always do what we want. He'll keep us. But that's just absolute satanic stuff. But you can see how subtle this is, right? 
Because it's super easy to say, like, well, God always does what I want. We see this in the church today a lot with some of those things where if you're following God and you pray for it, you name it, and then you claim it, God will give it. Well, that's God on a puppet string. That's not the God of the Bible. It It doesn't work like that. We don't name it and claim it, and then we get it. We receive a gift from God, which is the Holy Spirit, and then we live it. That's the plan. That's the, that's the program. And in living it, sometimes we see some pretty amazing things. Sometimes we see amazing things for no good reason. Like, honestly, sometimes we see amazing things for God to just say, I'm, I'm here with you. Right? Those little teeny things. And I've taken to just praying for teeny things because you wouldn't believe how many times God's just like, I got this one. And it's not for the ministry. It's not to show off. It's not to make a big deal out of things. It's just God saying, I love you. And we're in relationship walking together. So I'll pray for little things. I'll be out working and I'll be irritated and I'll be, and I'll, I'll be, the sweat will be coming in my eyes and making me salty and I'll be wiping it off. And it's like, oh God, man, it'd be really nice to just cool it down by 10 degrees. And then a cloud comes over the sun. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. God, you know, I'm, I'm baking here. It'd be great if you brought some rain through and just a cool air would be really nice. You just start praying those things. And then God just, boom, there comes the, the thunderstorm, goes down 10 degrees. All I can do is say, thank you, God. That was nice. And everybody outside is just like, that wasn't God. That was just weather patterns. You're like, oh, yeah? I, I'm just going to receive that because it's a gift that God's giving me, and I'm just going to live in that. And what a blessing. What a blessing to go through life, and God changes the weather just for me. That's not arrogance. That's just humi- like a humble gift. Who am I, God, is what David says when we do our study night. Who am I, God, that you would even care about my how, I've, how I feel today? But he is that God. He's our Father in heaven. He does care about us. He's Abba. He loves us. He does want to care for us. He does want to shower gifts on us. If we never ask, we never get. If we go jumping on top of temples to show off and take a step of faith— in doing something dumb, and God doesn't back us up, that's not God failing. It's God saying, that's not the way to do it. I'm just going to let you fail. I'm going to let that plan that you had absolutely implode because you need to see that's not the plan. It's not how to do it. So Satan's asking Jesus to take a step of faith. You ever heard that phrase in the church? Take a step of faith. Don't misuse that word. Go look it up. Do a Bible study on that. See what that means. Because a step of faith doesn't mean that you've got something you want to do and then you just step out and do it. And God's going to be there for that. I don't think so. Like serve in the church, God's told you to do that. Show brotherly kindness, God's told you to do that. Get the sin out of your life, God's told you to do that. Watch the miracles happen in that path. God's with you all the way on those spiritual things. This earthly stuff, like I want to start a parasailing business for Jesus. Well, you really just want to parasail for a living. Don't put that on God. That's ridiculous. Well, I'm starting to pray with selling for Jesus anyways. I'm just going to take a step of faith and do it. Okay, well, if, if it falls through, good luck with that. When I pray for things, I never, I don't expect God will come. I don't put him in a position to test him ever. Never do that. Mm-hmm. Believers waste a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of resources on grand schemes and shows of faith and displays of showmanship that don't do anything according to God's plan. It sounds super good, but it's not of God. It's a small G good. It's not a big G God. It's a shortcut, again. And it's the temptation of ministry is to do good things without God behind them. And that's, I think, one of the things that wastes people's time. What if God's plan was to have a family study the Bible every week, and it's just the four of them every single week, but they're being discipled and they're learning the word? Is that enough for a Bible study? Is that sufficient that one household serves God? Sure was in the Old Testament. 
sure was for Joseph. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's all that matters is that when you have a family unit that they serve God together. If you get multiple family units together, what a blessing. That's great. You get 10 family units together in the Old Testament, you start a synagogue. You get more than 10 families to get together, you get a big synagogue. But you got, it starts with a family unit serving the Lord, and they say, that's what we're going to do. Nothing else matters. We're going to study the word. We're going to do it with other people that study the word. Ministry should be and is stunning and amazing, but it's not stunning and amazing because God blesses our plans. It's stunning and amazing because it changes our hearts. And that amazement is often private and personal and wonderful and sweet. And man, to have a, a brother or sister around with seeing when those sweet blessings happen, and they can be like, dang, this is like God just did that. Holy cow, and we share that in fellowship. Look at what God just did. My poor son wants another truck. Like, man, my truck's getting old, it's breaking, whatever. And I'm super jealous because he starts praying about it. And then he's got somebody saying, hey, I got a truck with half the mileage. Do you want it? No, you can just have it free. He just gets a free truck. Nice job, Grant. But it's not because he was like, God's going to bless me with a new truck and I'm going to name it and claim it and get it. No, he never went like that. He's just like, Lord, it's kind of hard. I'm trying to work hard and I want to get ahead and, you know. And he's trying to do his thing as a young man. And God's just like, I got you, buddy. I know you like these trucks. But it's not a God on a puppet string thing. It's a God as father giving gifts as he pleases, when he pleases, how he pleases to bless our lives, not to build our ministry. God builds the ministry. We don't. It's really simple. And then Jesus says this, verse 12. I know I'm moving slow today. I just, this stuff really got me going. Jesus answered and said to him, it's been said. It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I love the it has been said part of this. Yeah, you know, it's been said this. He doesn't quote chapter and verse. It's just like, you know, it's been said. That's also something that's in there too, Satan. Because he's not denying that God revealing himself is somehow a bad thing. Like sometimes showmanship happens in the church. Big miracles happen. God does a lot of public miracles in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with those. And so he doesn't deny that that would, boy, that would be, yeah, me jumping off the building and having angels swoop me up, that would be pretty amazing. But, you know, it's also been said, you shouldn't be tempting God, right? Like, that, that miracle's not going to happen because I put it, made God do something or put him in a position to save me as a, a pastor. So ministry should have a special access to God's blessing and power, but we don't use God and we don't control God in that power and access. Isn't that, does that make sense? Jesus doesn't respond by taking a step or trusting angels or the care and protection of God on demand. Uh, he goes to the heart of it. God has power and it's undeniable and it's not for me to call on it. That's a very human thing to say because Jesus is God. So for him to use these very human responses to model this for us and then teach his disciples so Luke can write it down, he responds to twisted scripture with the heart of scripture. I love this. You don't have to memorize it word for word. You just need to know generally what it says and what it's like. And, and Jesus doesn't cite this word for word. Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye, as ye tempted him in Massa. Isn't that an interesting thing? Don't tempt the Lord God like you did out in the wilderness in Massa. Don't do that. So he doesn't, he doesn't quote it word for word. He just gets to the heart of it. God is God. He's not our toy. He's not for us to call on for a promotional gig or show. Our will dies and his will goes forth. So it's a, it's a, it's a temptation of the will. 
It's amazing that when we bring everything to God, we know he can do anything with those needs, but he may or may not. So when we pray, we get yes, no, and hold on for a sec. And those are the answers we get. And we, we accept that God's answers are better than our will. So, man, I really, really want this thing. The Lord's not going to give it to you. Okay. Paul says, man, I got this thorn in my side. Lord, if you could take it away, that'd be great. Be a nice thing. The Lord says, no, you're going to keep that. It's keeping you humble, you arrogant little punk. I want you to do my work, and that thorn's helping you stay humble. So keep it. And the Lord knows that's better for Paul's ministry than if Paul got rid of the thing. And it might be that I'm working outside, sweating and about to pass out as an old out-of-shape man, and the Lord just says, you know what, you just go ahead and pass out because you you're going to need to stop working like that. You need a little humility. So yes, no, and maybe is how it comes. So and it's amazing here that we can bring anything to God. We're supposed to bring all things to God. First John 4.15, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If we ask things according to our will, no guarantees right? We're taught this. It's really clear. And this is amazing when you go through the scriptures, how consistent this is. When we pray, we pray God's will, right? Again, we'll get to this with Chronicles tonight. This is how David prays. We get an example of it. We got to see the whole picture. And when you get people twisting the scriptures, what I would call the aha, aha people, we don't get caught up in that. We know the heart of the scriptures. We know what it says. We're confident in that. Jesus teaches possibility with God, not a control or manipulation with God. Mark 10, 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with men it's impossible, but not with God. For With God, all things are possible. All things are possible. They're not guaranteed. So God can do anything. So we pray for anything. We pray bigger than our imagination. And we accept when God does things or when he doesn't, but he waits for us to ask. Jesus' answer, you shall not tempt the Lord. I think there's a double meaning here. And I think Jesus uses this artfully, and he's got a little tongue-in-cheek going. Satan tempts the activity of the angels. The angels will swoop you up and catch you. Get that? So in Jesus, he points to God himself. But he's also pointing, who's the Lord? So there's God saving him from falling off the temple, but there's also Satan tempting Jesus. So when he says, you shall not tempt the Lord, he's either talking about the Lord saving him from jumping off the temple, but he could likewise be saying, I'm done with you. Stop tempting me. I'm the Lord. And I like this as a human, like I can use the same thing because it's not between me and Satan, it's between Satan and God. So I can take myself out of the equation, put Jesus right in there. Stop tempting what Jesus has got going. Knock it off. And notice this is the end of the temptation narrative, right? This is it. Satan just says, you're done. Enough. And I, and I, there's a resolution to this that I think Christians would do well to get a better backbone. Satan tempts the flesh. He tempts you with the world. He tempts you with this will thing. And at some point you're just like, you know what? I'm done with this. Satan, get behind me. You're, you shouldn't be tempting this. This is the ministry of God that's going on. You don't get a place here because we're just going to do what God's called us to do. And we don't need your permission. We don't need your help. And we don't need your suggestions for how to advance the ministry. We're just going to do it. Well, that's, you know, maybe you're, that, that's inactivity. No, it's actually a choice to be active, but to do it God's way. I want that built. I want it strong. So Satan um, loses, so to speak. But then you get this little past here thing that evil is not quite done. E evil is an eternal being, just like God, just like us. Um, so we get the, the responses of Jesus. And it finishes with basically you're done. 
Um, God, Satan twists the word. Jesus doesn't get into it. Temptation, I think we can take away from all three of these. Temptation's real and it's subtle. And to recognize it as believers is a huge weapon in our arsenal. And to not miss this as a fellowship, brothers and sisters, these are the things that get at us. These are the things that attack us. Jesus has been blessed by the baptism and the Holy Spirit. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He knows his calling and his ministry and what he needs to do. This is when Satan goes after him. Not before. It's when he becomes a threat. So my prayer for everybody here is that you you become a threat to the enemy. That your words, that your life and your actions are so filled with the Word and the Holy Spirit in balance that you become a threat. And you're just like, oh, I had somebody that came up and they literally said this out of their mouth and it sounded just like Satan, right? I'd encourage you to be thoughtful and diplomatic with your words, but don't bend on this stuff. No thanks, right? You don't have to call them Satan or anything like that. Um, But this expectation of ministry is exactly when the enemy attacks. It's evil. It's horrible. We serve. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do you need any clearer instructions on what we're supposed to do? Rejoice, pray, give thanks. That's what God wants. God wants such simple stuff from us. And our humanity and our flesh makes it so much more complex than that. It's not more complex than that. It's just that simple. I think sometimes in our informality, we forget how awesome this is. Because we're pretty informal. I mean, I got a kid wearing a camel hat for worship, right? We're a pretty informal group, but we forget that what we're doing here is absolutely sacred. It's precious. Like there are people who have built cathedrals around what we do. It's amazing and wonderful, but God doesn't need the cathedral. He needs our heart to make it sacred and sacred and holy and consecrated. And if we can do that in our heart, he, we give more than a temple, more than a, more than a cathedral. We give to God our hearts. And we know that what we do is sacred when we rejoice, we pray, and we give thanks for that's the will of God through Jesus Christ in you. It's a love that we have and a lifetime of sacrifice because Jesus rose from the dead for us. So we give it back to him. If people are drawn to the fellowship, they do it because of our love for one another. It's that simple. If people are drawn to the fellowship, it's because they're sick of shame and they're sick of sin and they're sick of the prison of it. And they want something different. And I hope that studying the Word starts to do that. In ministry, if we do stunts, God might just let us drop. Frankly, we did the church in the park thing, and we got done with trying it out once, and it was like, eh, eh, eh. Well, you know, it wasn't particularly a Holy Spirit thing. So we stopped doing it, right? Sometimes people do ministries, and they go on for years and years and years because it's what they did last year. It's what they did, the, you know, it worked 10 years ago, so let's keep doing it. I love the flexibility. I love the humility of just saying maybe we missed something there, so we just let it drop. God let it drop, so will we. On the other hand, certain things work, and ministry starts to happen. You're like, how did that happen? What just what just went down there? And the Lord just blesses something because it was in our heart and it was in our spirit, and we're like, we need to do more of that. So we follow the spirit, not the other way around. Verse 13, when the devil had ended every temptation, again, this was a 40-day sequence. We only got three. Every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan's not done. He doesn't quit. He's still around. He's just looking for the timing. And he's not going to waste his resources when there's a dead end. When we can shut Satan down, we get a break from Satan. Now we're just back to our flesh and the world, right? Those daily struggles. Some argue that um, 
the three temptations here sum up all temptations. I, I want to just encourage you to say the, the Bible doesn't say that. We got these three temptations because Luke wanted to highlight them. Um, there are other temptations that are out there that we see throughout the Bible. Right, so but Satan's throwing everything at Jesus he can. We need to be watchful for more than just these three temptations. There's lots of other things that take us away from the Word of God. That's the whole counsel of God. That's part of what we need to learn. It's why we need to be watchful for more than just three temptations. Our goal is to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the Word of God and to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That's our calling. So we're in the Word, we know what it says. We get our teaching, we set our minds on Christ, we know the word. Luke gives us just a sampling of how Jesus handled it. And lo and behold, he takes everything from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8, uses a very small piece of scripture to deal with all temptation. Isn't that great? Like, I don't have to memorize the Old Testament. I just need to, like, know the Shema and what's around it. I need to know the heart of what scripture says. It takes a lot of obligation of us. And that's tough when you meet somebody that's, I, I don't know, I've, I've met some people that I really respect. They just have brilliant minds really, really smart people, and I have a high regard for them, but they're no more prepared to, to know the heart of scriptures than I am. And frankly, I've met five-year-olds that can communicate the heart of scripture better than I can. Isn't that beautiful? There's nothing so complex here that we can't do it, and I, I think Jesus did that on purpose. Um, but they're very particular here to the beginning of ministry, and I think that we see these kinds of things. And so just after baptism, after the Holy Spirit, after a public ministry, ministry has these temptations, and they're these three, and I'm just going to sum them up again. Ministry should provide bread. That's the temptation. Not having hunger or want. There should be no, no sacrifice. Um, or God says maybe ministry does take sacrifice. Maybe you need to do with less so that the ministry can have more. Right? Ministry should be easy. No struggle. There shouldn't be a cross involved. Shouldn't be conflict with other people. Or maybe ministry is a battleground activity and there is struggle and there's work to do, right? Ministry, third temptation, should have special access to God. You shouldn't have patience. You shouldn't trust. You should use your Holy Spirit power and make that car start with some Holy Spirit juice, right? You have special access when you're in the ministry. Or there's humility and appreciation when God does act in your life, right? There's a biblical understanding of these things and then there's Satan. So he departs. He's limited, He's not everywhere. He's not all-powerful. He is not as spiritually ranked as you and I are. Get behind me. I don't need to deal with you. God's given all authority to Jesus Christ. I serve Jesus. You don't. Get behind me. I'm done with you. John, 1 John 4.4, 4, You, dear children, are from God, have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one that's in the world. This is why the Holy Spirit being in you up to the top, even overflowing, that's a big deal. The Word and the Holy Spirit need to be working hand in hand. The Word without the Spirit is head knowledge. The Spirit without the Word is emotionalism. They both fall short. You have to have a balance of the Spirit and the Word in your life. Then you become something that God uses when He chooses. So, frankly, Jesus quotes 6 and 8, and he gives you the basics, nothing beyond what we can do, so that we can be ready at that time when Satan thinks it's opportune to come and get us again. And I, and I feel like sometimes attack against ministry, and I'm just saying this over the last five, six years with this Bible study, it comes in waves. Every two, three months or so, somebody will show up, and they start bringing one of those three things to the table. And here's the thing, 
I can't judge them because I don't know if they're just maturing in their faith or if they're being used in a negative way. So as a church, we gracefully welcome everybody. We encourage people. We correct. We rebuke. We guide all the stuff Paul and Peter taught in their letters. We try to coach people in that sort of thing. Some people are responsive to it and some people aren't. And so it's a really interesting thing. And so as that happens, like the weird thing is our temptation, I think, sometimes is to always see new people as, okay, what are they bringing? And we can't do that. We have to choose God's will towards hospitality, brotherly kindness, and welcome. And so we do that. I think we're actually, it's one of our gifts as a fellowship. We're pretty good at welcoming people, even to the point where we creep people out, right? Which is great. Like, I'd rather overwelcome people than underwelcome people. I don't think God's going to be mad at us for being hosp- hospitable. He's called us to do that. And if people don't want to be known when they walk into a room, they maybe aren't ready for real fellowship. Then they're not going to be blessed by real fellowship where we actually know each other. So nothing other than the basics here uh, at some level. If you feel like you're under attack, if you feel like you, the enemy's coming at you and there's waves that come at you, here's the thought. Do what Jesus did. Start with Deuteronomy 6 and read it and get to know it. You don't have to learn it word for word. You can paraphrase it just like Jesus did. You don't have to remember the verse number and the chapter number. You can just say it just like Jesus did. I'd start with John 3.16. That's a good one for us in the New Testament. You can just cite G- Jesus 3.16 and all three of these temptations and it actually works. There's a lot of Bible passages. You know, all of the Proverbs, Romans chapter 8, there's certain passages you can just learn them in their general sense of it, and you can throw the Word of God against any of these temptations, and it pretty much holds up. So do it. Get there. We'll finish up our section tonight with the last 14 and 15. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region, not because he's in the wilderness, but because of the baptism. Word has been spreading. Actually, his time away has been serving the ministry. God's been, the Holy Spirit's been working even when Jesus hasn't been there. Think of that. Following God's will actually does the work. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And even for Messiah, ministry starts after he beats temptation. Too many people go into the ministry and they haven't beat temptation yet. That's dangerous. That's when whole denominations go off the rails. It's really sad. Every denomination started off, I think, awesome. Holy Spirit was moving. They were getting back to the word, the scriptures. But then you get people in the ministry, they haven't beat temptation, and they they fall to one of these three. So he, he returns. He comes back. He's beat temptation. He's ready to start his ministry. In the power of the Spirit, the Greek there for power is dynamis. It's a great word. It's where we get the word dynamite. It means explosive power, strength. Jesus comes back and it explodes. The ministry absolutely rocks the world. It moves mountains. News of him went throughout all the surrounding region. Like everybody's talking Jesus at this point. He hasn't even done a public miracle yet. He's done nothing. And the Holy Spirit's just moving. Things are happening. He doesn't have to work at the ministry. He doesn't have to throw himself off of temples. He doesn't have to do great displays. Everybody, the buzz has just started. But he's ready for the buzz because he's beat temptation. He knows how to handle that traffic that's coming his way. I like that. Galilee has 240 fishing towns at this period in history. A lot of agriculture, a lot of sheep getting done, mostly fishing around Galilee. Those 240 towns have over a million people. 
this is a crossroads traffic area where people are coming through. If you're coming from the north, you go through Galilee. If you're coming from the east, you go through Galilee. So a lot of the shipping routes are happening. If you're a merchant coming through, hey, what's going on over there? Oh, Jesus is coming. He's going to preach. They're all meeting in the field. So you start going down there. So when you see things like the Chosen, where there's like two, 3,000 people, that's a, a fragment of the people that live in this region. It really is still just the people wanting to seek God because there's millions of people in this region. So I think it's interesting. He teaches. How does he start his ministry? Not with miracles. He starts it with teaching. What's he teaching? He's teaching the Bible. Here's what the Word of God says. Nothing that shocks people until he starts pulling out Isaiah. <laughs> but he's just teaching what the Word says. Here's the heart of the Scriptures. Here's what it says. Probably teaching Deuteronomy 6 because he just got some uh, you know, mileage out of that with Satan. Goes to synagogues, teaches the Word, and then this being glorified by all. He doesn't need to try to get glory. People give him glory because they start to, like, this guy, at this point, Jesus is a great teacher. Like, they're going to hear him because he's somebody that, like, moves them, right? And I think this is interesting in the church. You've got teachers right now getting really popular on the internet because their teaching is solid. And you got teachers that tickle your ears and you got teachers that teach the word and they're both rising on the internet. It's really interesting. You got the wheat and the chaff happening at the same time. And so you have these, and so he's being glorified by all. And in Luke, not because of his miracles, he's getting glorified by all because of his teaching. And people just love to hear the word of God. It has power in and of itself. Well-taught scriptures, I think, is a miracle in and of itself. It's just amazing. So early on, there's no resistance to Jesus. He's well-known. He's appreciated. He gains a following until next week where we'll pick up at the end of Luke and we'll see where he starts to rub people the wrong way. Um, let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing of it. Lord, teach us your ways. Help us to fight temptation, to do it as a body. Lord, I think you gave us brothers and sisters in the church to help us to recognize these things, to see them for what they are. Lord, help us to not be fearful of Satan or the devil in that he has nothing on your word and that we can use just basic Bible to fight him. Uh, he's not... Uh, stronger than you in any way, shape, or form. Lord, we give all glory and honor to you. You still create a buzz. Your word still teaches. And we, Lord, we want to just do that, not only in our lives, but to share it as a family. And Lord, we want to share it with other people around us. Help us to be so filled with the Holy Spirit that it's overflowing. It's not next to us. It's not just starting, but we're getting filled up by you. Lord, help us to put your will in front of our will because your will just is better and your path is better. The life you have for us in your will is better and we choose that over ourselves. Lord, bless it. Be with our baptism next week. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.